Well, thank you, gentlemen. Let's just continue that expression as we want the Lord to indeed speak to us and shape us and conform us. So let's take our Bible, the way that he still speaks to us through his word alone, and let's turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Echo the welcome. If you're visiting with us, it's, it's good to have you as you seek to See the Lord and know the Lord this morning with us. If you do not have a Bible with you, you'll see one right in front. Just look in the rack right in front of you and follow along with us. Turn to Romans chapter 4. This morning, we come to the end of this fourth chapter. It's been a chapter where we have resided for the past couple of weeks. Chapter where we looked at Abraham, remember, one of the fathers of the faith, along with David, sharing that same faith, a faith in God, which for the fathers of the faith made them right, a faith counted to them, the text has taught us, counted to them as righteousness, a faith that clung to God's mercy and believed in God's promise, that faith, that's what's been in view. Last week, we examined the middle of this chapter, the middle portion, where it's zeroed in on Abraham, the father of many nations by faith, the father of all the faithful, Jew or not, by faith, the father of us all, verse 16 told us, all who believe, who share the same faith as Abraham. Now that Paul has presented the father of faith, Abraham, the apostle will now proceed to unveil the nature of his faith. This is how he's going to close this chapter. And it is very helpful and very needed for us. Because if Abraham's faith, if it is, if it's the same faith believers would have today, then it stands to reason that we would recognize the same essence today. And this is, of course, what we've been saying through this whole study. It indeed is the same faith. That's why he is the father of the faith. And the question will be, as we consider that, if it's the same faith and the same essence, do we recognize that same faith today? That's going to be the question, right? If that's true, and you can see not just by way of proposition these few weeks, by way of the text, if it is the same faith in essence today, the question is, do we see that? Do we possess that same faith that we have been studying. Let's then consider that. Look down at verse 18. We're just going to pick up where we left off here, verse 18. In hope, he, again, Abraham, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. For the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, with this passage before us, we pray that 
you would enable us to see it clearly. Lord, help us to have these truths, as we just sang to you, go deep in us. And Lord, let us live out what we are reading here. This faith, Lord, let us go and live that out later. Indeed, to your glory, we pray. Amen. These final verses of chapter 4, the ones we just read, are going to give us three realities of true saving faith. That's what we're seeing in this text. Simply that. Three realities of true saving faith. And the first is this, what faith sees. What faith sees. Now, before we begin in verse 18, it will help us with this text to just back up for a moment. We need to do this. Let's recall, take a look at verse 17. This is necessary, where we ended last week. But it was an important transition to this week. Look again at verse 17. It said, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So let's look at that, Westmount. Paul bringing into view in that verse the God in whom he, this is Abraham, believed. He's bringing his person to the fore here and characteristics of his person. And look at them. He's introducing two attributes or perfections of this God. Number one, the God who gives life to the dead. And two, the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. So look at that. Power over death. This is God. Power to bring something out of nothing. That is this God. That is the power we're talking about with this God. As we do when we are reading Scripture responsibly, we do not hop and and skip from verse to verse, right? What do we do? We build, we add, we carry with us verse to verse. That's how we read the Bible. So we hold on to that omnipotence of God, that all power of God in verse 17, as we keep reading in verse 18. And then this, look at it. In hope he... Abraham, still, of course, in hope, he believed against hope. Now, it's true, at first glance, as you look at that statement, it seems to be a conflicting statement. In hope, yet against hope, you would say. What is it? Well, simply, it is both. Exactly as it says. We're going to explain that. It's both. Exactly what it says. If we've been following closely with Paul's argument here, we will see this. In fact, we've been tracking in this argument with what? Two hopes, right? There are two hopes. This is what he's been unveiling. Two hopes, two faiths, and so on. There is a hope man places, remember, this is going all the way back to Romans 1, 2, 3, in himself, in law work, in achievement, in sight. That is a very tangible hope. Man in man. And then there's a hope that man can place in God, in God's work, in God's promise. Those two things continue to be held side by side with what Paul is teaching here. Two ways that man can hope to be made right with God to be reconciled to him. I hope we see that. That has not only been the point in this chapter with Abraham and David as examples of one kind of hope, But that has been the point in view since this book opened. In fact, let's be reminded of that. Chapter 1, verse 16, going back to purpose statements of this book and so on. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God, not man, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. 
pointing to one way, the power of God, the hope of God. That's opposed to the power of man. And we looked at this at length in chapter 1, chapter 2, culminating in chapter 3 with this, verse 20. <clears throat> for by the works of the law, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Works of the law, right, are impotent. No one is justified through that. And that's the other way. But yet, man still puts his hope in that. So look at it. The power and hope of man in man, one, versus the power and hope from God in God, two. In verse 18, which hope is which is here clarified by the account of Abraham given so far. And I think... Hopefully with that reminder, you would say that you begin to see that. Remember, Abraham, in the face of his futility, his impotence, remember when you think about uh, propagating the line and family, there was nothing more powerful back then for a man to do than that. But here he was faced the realization, Paul took us to that account of Abraham, that he was producing no son and his wife's Womb was barren, so he had no son as an heir. So in the face of that futility, what man would want to put his hope in? You have God unveiling the promise of a son, unveiling hope of a different kind. The promise of a son, offspring, a multitude of descendants. And Abraham, instead of believing in the hope in himself, believed in the hope of God, that hope. And then what? Look at chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say in light of that? Abraham believed God, and thus, look at this, it was counted to him as righteousness. And that hope, he believed in that hope, that hope that believes and trusts in God, not man. In that hope, Abraham believed, and look at it now, against hope, which of course is the other hope, which is the hope of man, the hope of man's power and ability, the hope of flesh, the hope of sight. Against that hope in man, Abraham believed by way of hope in God. Now, that is the hope in view here, the hope of God, not man, in which Abraham's fatherhood is rooted. Hope in God, which we recall has been our study these past two weeks. As such, as the rest of verse 18 reminds, it is in that hope, this hope in God, in which Abraham should become the father of many nations. God, in fact, listen, told him that. The end of verse 18, look at it. So shall your offspring be tied to that hope. That, of course, taken again from Genesis 15, verse 5. So what do we have? Abraham's hopeless futility and God's hopeful promise. This verse tells us that the hope Abraham had was set against the other hope. You see that? Now listen, this is not just a preposition that sets a contrast, right? This is not just a, a neat thing that the word against does. Look, it does that. It sets the contrast. But it actually does so much more as you see it written that way. Against hope, it's, it's very, very intentional. It is written this way to make clear just how much there is contrast here. Just how much these two are not only in contrast, but here we would say how far apart they are. Against, the word against there opens us up to the wide chasm between these two hopes. This is the inspired words are telling us here. And in the next two verses, Paul will show us what each hope sees. 
This is what Paul is setting up in his argument here. What do these two hopes, a chasm apart, see? That's Well, let's look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. This is important. This is what Abraham is seeing. And we have to recognize what Abraham saw. Recognize what Abraham saw. In fact, as recorded in Genesis 15, we get a glimpse in here, but it's expanded in the account, of course, first given in Genesis 15. And here in verse 19 of Romans, Paul gives us a short, compact summary of what Abraham's eyes saw. And let's look at them first. He saw his own body. Do you see that? Not just any Body or vessel, he saw an aged and weakened body. That's what he saw. He saw also, too, not only a weak body, but a body that was as good as dead. The text is blunt. About a hundred years old. Body that was about as good as dead. And three, he saw also the barrenness, or that word speaks to, it's literally this in the original, the deadness of Sarah's womb. Her womb was dead. That's what he saw, a dead womb and a dead body, impotence. That's what Abraham saw, now listen, with his eyes. But that is not what Abraham saw with his sight. Set against his earthly vision and the canvas before him horizontally, Abraham was presented with a heavenly canvas and a heavenly view. A promise from God above that stretched, listen, far beyond futility and flesh. A promise we covered at length last time. A son, a blessing, heirs, things that to man's eyes. Now think about that as you consider Abraham's body and Sarah's womb and so on. Things that to man's eyes that would seem what? Absolutely, positively impossible. Do you see that? You do with physical eyes. It's impossible. That's it. That's the point. It's impossible. Promises that would barely, that barely would classify as wishful thinking at best and more like deluded dreams. One imagines Abraham, right, in conversation with another. Again, we can just imagine this. What's your name, Abraham? Oh, father of many nations? Isn't your wife's womb dead? And, and by the way, you've got a lot of years behind you. How is that possible? One imagines. Yet here this text presents what faith sees. This is so important. Faith does not see what our flesh sees. It's not limited by senses. This is so important, beloved. Faith is not limited by the, the two orbs in our head. Earthly hope is limited. It's limited to what human eyes can blink and see. That's it. Faith, again, is not only different or opposed to that, but here it is, the word. It is set against that. You see that? That has to be the position. There's no insensorial compliment there. It can't be like, well, I need my eyes to catch up. Your eyes will never catch up. Faith here and always, beloved, is set against what our eyes are limited to see. So see Abraham's faith. 
See where his hope was found. Look at verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham was not plagued with unbelief. In other words, to bring it to our attention, he was not fixated on his situation. He wasn't staring at Sarah's womb. He wasn't looking in the mirror, looking at an old body and saying, what's going to happen with all of this? Abraham didn't brood over how a 75-year-old man and a woman with a dead womb could produce offspring. He didn't sit and wonder and wonder and wonder. He didn't crunch the numbers or consult other humans. He didn't collect facts and data and could-bes and wonders and propositions. No, he just believed. He just believed. God promised, and Abraham what? He believed. That's it. In fact, verse 20 tells us Abraham actually grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. How is that? It is simple. It is very simple, loved ones. Abraham believed God. That's how he grew in faith. He believed God. And this is not only instructive for us, but it is also an encouragement. Now listen, and I pray we can see this, because some of you may have questions as you think about the Abraham account. Abraham had real faith. Listen, faith with sight for God, not seeing flesh. But listen, Abraham was still in flesh. He was still a man, wasn't he? Remember later in Genesis 17, when God reiterated the promise to Abraham of a son, you might recall that. Recall his reaction. Let me just read for you this, in case it has crossed your mind with this uh, lauding of Abraham's faith, and duly so. But listen to this. This is when he is told of the promise. Let me pick it up. Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Again, as we've seen over and over again, the promise repeated, restated, a different format. But then listen to this, verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And you're saying... What of the laughter? What of the questions? That doesn't sound like a man of faith, right? What of that? It's a good question. Listen, that's not a laughter and questions of unbelief. That is a real laughter and a real question of humanity. Like all of us that pause in our simple humanity sometimes, to recognize the reality of the situation. But listen to this. Abraham didn't stay laughing, did he? And he didn't pile on the questions, did he? So you consider that reaction. I want you to consider John Calvin's helpful observation on it. He said this, I quote, Believers, listen, are never so enlightened that there are no remains of ignorance, nor is the heart so established that there are no misgivings. That's very helpful, isn't it? And it's true. We're not perfected yet. We're in progress, but we're not there. We are being sanctified. As such, beloved, listen, true faith, godly faith, is not full understanding, but what? Full trust. 
Godly faith is not full understanding. I know everything, so now I can believe. Instead, it is full trust to believe the things I cannot see, the things God says. Most often, Westmount, for our good, listen, for our good, we are not given all the hows and all the whys, are we? We're just told the what's, the promises from God. That's all we need. Listen, you cannot remain or root in what your eyes see or you would continue laughing. And so many, sadly, just keep on laughing and keep on questioning, don't they? I know what God said, but... We don't remain there. You can't remain or root in what your eyes see. And here's another reason. Because all around, what do your eyes see? As David reminded us this morning, all around, what do your eyes see? Truly, let's be honest this morning. I pray we always are. You see hopelessness, don't you? Your eyes open each morning and you look around and you see hopelessness. Calvin continues, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. That is absolutely true. He continues, he promises immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is merciful and kind to us, yet outward judgments judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done, he muses, and I love this. We must listen with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Amen. Close your eyes. And believe God. Now listen. I do need to say this. This is not some passive float by. Don't do the things God calls you to. You engage and act. But this is when you are tempted. With the things that you are seeing. The things that seem to be in such conflict. With what God is saying. You close your eyes to those things. Not to your responsibilities and what you do. Brothers and sisters. What does your faith see today? What is your faith fixed on right now? Or are you stuck in laughter? Are you stuck with questions? Maybe this morning your faith is slowly, slowly turning to doubt. Maybe you feel the weeds of unbelief starting to grip your heart. Repent. With eyes closed, beloved, please repent right now. Pass by yourself and all things connected to you. Open your eyes, renewed eyes, the grace and mercy of Christ with eyes of faith to see what faith sees. Look up and again and again and again and keep looking up and don't stop looking up to the things that are unseen, Hebrews 11.1. Look to the assurance of hope and to the one unseen And he's the one given next, what faith sees. Look to the one who faith believes. That's our next point. Look to the one who faith believes. The next verse, verse 21, flows from verse 20. And it gives us the bedrock of Abraham's faith. Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
Just a sure statement, fully convinced. Beloved, this is who faith believes. Do you see that? True faith believes God. True faith believes in God. We mentioned at the end last week that faith in God is a reasonable faith. So important to say it. It's a reasonable faith, meaning our faith is sound, not willy-nilly, not irrational. As many people will want to tell you, not wild, but it is a sound faith precisely because it is faith in God. Faith's object makes our faith sound, right? As we ended with that, none else. We commented last week, there's no one more trustworthy than God. And Christian, you believe in God. The text reminds us here that Abraham had strong faith, listen, because of who he believed in. This is just so important. It doesn't comment on the sincerity of his faith, and we're going to come back to sincerity in a moment. It comments on the object of his faith. And the work of the object of his faith, that's what made Abraham's faith sound because he believed in God. Before we nod quickly here, Christian, let us be sure we see what the verse says. Look again at verse 21. Abraham was what? Fully convinced. This is not wavering. This is not the half-hearted faith we often produce, is it? This is not the double-minded or the unstable faith we just crank out. It's not that kind of faith that James 1.8 describes. Unstable. Divided. We heard earlier of the hall of faithful in Hebrews 11. Atticus read a portion of that chapter. Speaking of the nature of their faith, Hebrews 11.6, I remind you again, says this. Listen, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I have to comment. I can't restrain that so many people say the good works of the neighbors and the people out there, don't they count for something? This, this verse says it doesn't. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. They can pile up all the works they want. Now, there's other texts for that. But if they don't have faith, they're not pleasing God. It doesn't matter how many niceties they perform. This is belief in God, belief that he is, and belief in the one true God, and what the one true God does, his being, his doing. Westmont, true faith is faith that is, look at it again, fully convinced, not just in God, but even more, look at this, that God will do as he says. That's what faith is. God alone, that is who Abraham's faith believed in. As such, that is why this is true of that father of the faith, verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Simple. Faith that believes in God, takes him at his word, believes his promises. That is the only faith that is counted to the sinner as righteous. That's it. And while we're here, let us not lose what this book has taught us thus far. Let's pause for a moment and be reminded of it. This is exclusive faith. And faith in God alone. This is, this is a faith, and look at it. This is who faith believes. Again, we talked at length a few weeks ago. We've mentioned this a number of times. Not just faith generally. This is an intentional faith. Who faith believes. It's, it's a faith that is a pure faith. And what do we mean by that? It's not 99% God and, and 1% in the good you've done. In fact, some of us, our figures go a little higher than that. 
And we present that to God. It's not faith in God that you count as yours because your parents and your grandparents had it. And those verses just seem to come to mind really quickly. That's not what we're talking about or the text is. And it's not true faith, friends, if you trust anything at all other than God within it. True faith is God, God alone. There's no nothing tied. It's just, just God and only God. Nothing of you. And we do need to add this. We mentioned it before. This is where people get tripped up with faith. It's not real faith, biblical faith. If the object is anyone other than God, and listen, why do we say that? Because it may be sincere faith. You all know people that are very sincere in some kind of faith, do you not? I know you do, sincere in what they worship and so on. In fact, we would say you know people that are really sincere. We've said this so many times here at Westmount, but this text begs it again because we go wrong here. If the object of faith is wrong, the destination is sure. If the object of faith is wrong, the destination is sure. And the destination is sure if the object of faith is not God. That's not who faith believes. Listen. I know I've mentioned this before, but bears repeating. There are no suicide bombers in heaven. Are there? Are any more sincere than them? No one can argue with the sincerity of their faith. Listen, they bark and bite, don't they? Yet God will not look at them on that day and say, you know... You called me by a different name. I get it. I get it. You believed a wrong book, and I get it. You you couldn't really help that. I get it. I get it. You even denied who my son is. I get that too. You know, there's all these religions out there. I get it. But it matters little. Listen, you sincerely believed. You, You sincerely believed in something, in a deity of your own understanding. You know what? Come on in. No, on that day, it will matter who your faith believes. It will. And the question before you today, before that day, is who do you believe in today? Who do you believe in right now? If you walk out that door and you fall down dead, who do you believe in? Sure, you may shrug off your shoulder those religions and say, I'm thankful I'm not that guy, not strapping anything to my chest. But listen, do you still harbor a God of your own understanding? Are you still defining the terms of who God is? This plagues nominal Christianity. We still want to define God. We say, I believe in God, but let me tell you about that God. And then we just go and define it the way we want. Are you defining the terms or are you? Taking God for who he is, who he said he is, who he says he is, who he continues to speak through this word. Are you picking up the Bible, reading it, and reading what God says? Or are you combating it? Are you rationalizing it? Are you pushing it aside? Are you propping up some other faith? Do you believe what you read in these pages about the son who was promised, the son who came and did the work you cannot? Who do you believe in? 
And is it Christ? Only Christ is who true faith believes in. And believing in him alone. Listen, no baggage claims. None. Just faith. 100% in him. As I to exhort you often, I don't know your stead this morning, but I encourage you all to check your faith. Myself included, right? Remove the dross. Lose the double mind. Repent and return. We've seen what faith sees. We've seen who faith believes. Last one, when faith counts. For one final time in this passage, Paul reaches back to the Abraham account. He's been doing that all through this, right? We've been learning much as we go back into the Old Testament. Again, referencing Genesis 15, verse 4, in the words, it was counted to him as righteousness. And look at why he does this. Now, let's go to verse 23. We continue. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Simply, Paul states that the words it was counted to him were not written just for Abraham. Not just for Abraham's sake. That's what it says. This was not just an account of Abraham's history. Well, you know what? This really worked for Abraham, or this was a thing about Abraham. No, that's not it. In other words, the purpose of those words from God by way of Moses, listen, given 1,500 years or so before these words in the first century in the book of Romans, were given for a purpose much greater than recording Abraham's righteousness. They do that. They record the Abraham account, and they're helpful, but it's for much more than that. We could say it another way. These words were not given just to show how righteousness was counted during Abraham's time, or Moses' time, or even Paul's time. That's not why they were given. When faith is counted as righteousness, it's much broader than that, or we would say a time period. We continue in verse 24, but for ours also, not just for his sake, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 24, the words, the account of Abraham's faith, look at this, not just given for Abraham's sake, but for ours also, that is a sweeping ours, right? And that's you, Christian, along with the Romans. Now, even here, the audience is even bigger than a few centuries. This is an audience bigger than the 20th century B.C., the 15th century B.C., or even 1st century Rome. It's much bigger. Paul says, faith counts as righteousness for us. And who is the us in verse 24? Us is those who, look, believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord. There's no time condition there. There's no limiter to when that applies. This is when faith counts. Saving faith that believes in him who raised a son, like Isaac, like Christ. That kind of faith to believe, to believe in a son, that he would be raised from the dead, to fulfill a promise, that kind of faith is always counted as righteousness to all who believe. This is a fitting close to this section of Paul's argument here in Romans. This is not just David's faith or just Abraham's faith or just Roman faith. This faith, again, counts as righteousness every time and to everyone who believes. 21st century B.C., 
or 21st century AD. Then or now, that is when this faith counts. So friend, if you're following along today, these past few weeks, and you've been looking at Abraham's faith or David's or Paul's and, and thought, well, that, that's a good faith, I see that. It really is an ancient faith, right? It was the faith then. That is the faith they used to have. You'd be wrong. Abraham's faith is still the faith today that is counted as righteousness. In kind. Abraham's faith is still the faith that makes one right in God's sight, no other. Remember, this kind of faith, at its root and essence, this timeless faith is this. This faith that believes in hope against hope is, you see something. God says something. And who do you believe? This faith always is a faith that believes God, not self. That's a timeless faith. This faith always is set against what your eyes see. That's what we're talking. That's the timeless faith. In fact, the faith in view here, the true faith, is always set against what we see. And this is what we've been saying, and I hope you see it clearly now. That's what true faith is. And let me say it this way, in case you feel like I'm just being too redundant. You will look at times in your life for what you see, right? To just confirm what you need to believe. And it doesn't work that way. Don't be looking for confirmation with the eyes in your head, because so often you won't get it. You just must believe. That's true faith. You might hear that and ask, why? Why then? What, what is it about such a faith? Because that's so hard to hear. What is it about that that counts? And that's the question, right? Well, this chapter ends with the final verse that answers that. For those still with questions, let's give it a closing consideration. Look at verse 25 with me. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification... Remember last week, we closed with verse 17 in chapter 4. Do you remember? We've mentioned it already a few times. We saw two foundational truths last time in verse 17 as we closed, stated of God the Father. Remember, again, they were, let's be reminded from verse 17, that God gives life to the dead and that God calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, this week, our passage, and really the whole chapter, closes with the reality and evidence of those truths as demonstrated through God the Son, Jesus Christ. Westmount, let's be clear here. Only God gives life to the dead. As we considered what David reminded us, this world is gripped in a fear of death. I don't know of anything more hopeful than the reality that God gives life to the dead. Can there be anything more? Well, there is nothing more. And Christ testifies to that. Remember, in Romans 1, Paul said concerning this son, Jesus, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, fulfilling prophecy and so on, verse 4. But he said also, this Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. And then remember, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. 
Christ was raised, and all those who follow Christ will too be raised from death to life. And God calls into existence, secondly, the things that do not exist. And what does not exist, beloved? What do we not have? A saving righteousness before God. We don't have it, do we? We don't. Yet in Christ, God calls righteousness forth. It's amazing in the construction here. It's not, can go even further. God is going to take the something and the nothingness, the righteousness of Christ, and make it ours. This is just beautiful. It's not ours, of course. We have nothing, but he's going to bring forth something through Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses. That is delivered up for the repentant, the sinner that sees and turns in Christ. God brought forth something out of our nothing. With us, righteousness does not exist. It is not only impossible, listen, it is unreal. And here, and we can almost consider verse 25 as like a one-verse creed or a one-verse confession. In here, this one verse, Paul provides faith's substance. See it. It does not just believe. A way of review of faith and belief. It doesn't just believe. It does not just believe in God. It does not just believe that there's a God, and that there's a Christ, and that that God did something. It doesn't just believe that. And it does not just believe that Christ can. It doesn't just believe that. Those faiths come up short. This faith, the faith that believes in hope, against hope, believes that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning he bore our sin. Beloved, not sin generally, but sin particularly. So all the evil you have done. Listen, all the evil I have done, he bore it. The saved Christian, you say, I say, my lies, my anger, my greed, my lust, my murder, debt paid. And this faith that believes in hope against hope believes that Christ was raised, listen, for our justification. Nothing generally, not something you hope humanity grabs onto from a cloud. Our justification. Listen, Westman, he was raised for you. He was raised for me. This is not an inspirational Easter story. The Christ walked out of the grave for me. He walked out of the grave after being buried three days for me. And as such, I will too. You will too. You will conquer the grave in Christ. For me, my grave is not the end. Not just a real faith, this is a personal faith, is it not? And that's the faith outlined and presented in this chapter. And it always has been and still is and always will be the only faith that justifies. It sees the unseen. It believes in God and it is always, regardless of time stamp, counted as righteousness. Next time we embark on the next section of this book, chapter 5. What a grand chapter we have ahead of us. But even more, 
Paul will give us an in-depth look at how this faith was counted, not just in chapter 5, but in 6, 7, right through to 8. It'll be an amazing journey ahead. But more than that, even, along the way, we are going to be given implications of such faith. Beloved, get excited with me. They're miles ahead here and so much blessed truth to cover. We'll leave it there for this Lord's Day with joyful anticipation to pick it up next week. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you died for the repentant sinner. You laid down your life for me. You laid down your life for all of those with this faith, faith to repent and forsake self, to place faith and trust in Son, and to have salvation through his righteousness alone. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray now that we would live in light of that righteousness that is not our own, but imputed to us. And God, enable us, strengthen us, we pray, in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.